2.99. Why are you judging my daughter's diving? I wasn't talking about her. I was finalizing this month's special at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 2.99% interest for 10 years. Wow, 2.99. That? Visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. This is one of those weeks that just has the, the feeling of a holiday week. I understand we've got the Labor Day weekend that's coming up, and you just get the idea that there's all sorts of people who are out and about and already planning for the three-day weekend. Summer is winding down. Hope you've just been able to enjoy summer just I- intensely because it has just been absolutely wonderful and lots of great stuff going on. Brewers are at home for another big series. It starts tonight against Pittsburgh after they took two of three from the Chicago Cubs, but that was always a wonderful sort of thing. So... They're still in the playoff race. Do not, do not give up hope then. Looks like it could be a great September. And, of course, you had the Keith Urban concert last night. I had to pass up tickets. Some friends had invited us. But we had one of those, it was one of those sort of bittersweet things because if you haven't been through this with children, you, you will at some point in time. Um, my wife's granddaughter, Gracie, who we're all very, very proud of, she's going to be a freshman at the University of Minnesota this year going into their nursing program. And she, um, she's going away to school today. So her parents were taking her up there. Today's move-in day. So we had a little dinner last night that, again, very, very bittersweet. We're very, very proud of her. But, you know, what, what can you end up doing? Kids are going away to college and lots of teary eyes and things like that. So if you haven't been through that, you will at some point in time. All right. A lot of ground to cover on the program today. Let's get started. All right. Here's... I, I've told this story before. A number of years ago, when um, we were owned by Journal Broadcast Group, and we owned radio stations all across the country, and one of the things that ended up happening was that you know we had a we had a talk station in in Tucson, Arizona, and one of the guys that was one of the hosts on the morning show, he uh, got sick. And matter of fact, I think he had a heart attack or something. And this is back when Charlie Sykes and I worked together. And so we, we alternated. I would do his show sometimes, and, and Charlie would do his show sometimes. And they just took us on the satellite, and, and we were able to do it. But it was a really interesting perspective to talk to people in, in Tucson, which is on the Texas-Mexico, which is on the Arizona-Mexico border. Because here in Wisconsin, when we talk about problems with illegal immigration, by and large, it's... It's an academic exercise. I, I mean, we, we, you know, obviously you have concerns about, gee, are people bringing, you know, are, do you have cartels that are, are bringing, you know, um, drugs across the border and can that find its way to Wisconsin and can we create a problem? And, and yes, and is it possible that people who are in this country illegally can migrate up to Wisconsin? And yes, it's possible in a theoretical sense, but let's face it, this, this is not something illegal immigration that that is at least what i would describe other than in theory it's not really something that affects day-to-day life here in southeastern wisconsin or northern wisconsin or, or whatever on the other hand you talk to people who live on on the border 
and it's a completely and totally different story. I mean, you'll, and when I was doing these shows, you get phone calls from people who say, Jeff, you've got to understand here. You know, I, I just every morning I, I wake up and there's 15 people in my backyard who have crossed into this country illegally and they don't have any money and all this type of stuff. And now we have to end up figuring out what we're going to do with them. And, you know, our community has to support them and we have to figure out how we're going to do that. And, and yes, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are associated with criminal activities and gangs and things like that. And it's causing problems in our community. So it's more, it's kind of like, you know, in, in Tucson, you can talk about, gee, you know, we're, they get snowstorms in, in Wisconsin. Well, okay, it's, it's an academic thing. People say, well, that, that's too bad for the people in Wisconsin, but I don't have to worry because we're not getting snowstorms down here. Well, it's the flip side of this. Yeah, here, in, uh, people illegally crossing the border is an academic sort of thing, but it's a real-world thing for people who live in these border communities and have to pay taxes to support this and all this, which is why... The arrogance of some politicians has caught the attention of other politicians. So what a number of mayors and governors in some of these border states like Arizona and Texas, what they have started doing is they have started busing people who come into this country illegally, busing them to these quote-unquote sanctuary cities like New York City and D.C., now, it, it, it's on average, they estimate that every day, every day for the past year, over 5,000 people have been arrested crossing the border illegally. Over 5,000 people a day. And that's just the ones that are arrested. So that's that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. You know there's all sorts of people, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands more that are coming across the border who never you know, get caught. So th- this becomes a problem for people in these border communities who have to figure out, okay, it's going to be our resources and our tax dollars, and we have to figure out where people are going to be housed, and we figure have to figure out where people are going to be, how they're going to be fed, and where they're going to go to schools, and where the health care treatment is going to be. So it's a big deal if you live along the border, or you live in one of these states that shares a border with Mexico. Um, New York City, it's a theoretical sort of problem. Washington, D.C., it's a theoretical sort of problem. So what the governors of Texas and Arizona have started doing is they've been soliciting volunteers. If you haven't seen the story, they'll go to some of these people who have crossed into the country illegally, and they're saying, well, okay, if you want, you can stay here. But if you'd like, you know, we'll, we'll bus you to D.C. We'll bus you to, to New York City. Would you like to go there? Nobody holds a gun to their head and says they have to, but we'll give you this this option, to which a number of people say, well, yeah, that's we, we want to go to Washington, D.C., or yeah, we, we want to go to New York. And so they've been arranging buses. Here's the story. Apparently, in recent months, um, more than 10,000, now keep in mind, 5,000 people are arrested each day for illegally crossing the border. More than 10,000 asylum-seeking mug- migrants have chosen the option of being bused to either New York or Washington, D.C. So they've done it. 10,000 total over the last several months, where you've got 5,000 people coming in a day. The mayors of Washington and New York are screaming like stuck whatevers because they're saying, well, we... We, 
we don't know what to do with this. You know, there, there was this bus, and, and we just got another couple hundred people that were sent up to us. But what are we supposed to do with them? You know, don't you realize that we have to take care of our homeless, and we have to figure out, you know, how we're going to educate and provide um, medical care for the people that are already in our cities? How dare you, governors of Arizona and Texas, how dare you send some of these people who've illegally come across into this country, how dare you send them to us and expect us to have to deal with them. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Two words from me. No sympathy. I mean, no sympathy. Maybe if you wanted to make it four words, I would say no sympathy at all. I mean, if you want to have a sanctuary city, fine. But then don't complain when... I don't know, some of the people that you think should get sanctuary from being deported or whatever end up on your doorstep, just like, you know, they've been ending up in huge numbers on the doorsteps of people who live in these border communities in, like, Arizona and Texas. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, you can't have it both ways. And I have absolutely no sympathy for the governors, for for the mayors of New York City or the mayors of Washington, D.C. for this. If anything, I would maybe encourage the governors of Texas and Arizona to expand this whole concept. Well, okay, would, would you like to go to, let's see, where, Joe, where is Joe Biden from? Would you like to go to Delaware? Anybody want to volunteer to, to, to go to Delaware? 855-616-1620. The only way you can call attention to a problem, I think, is to make everybody recognize that this is a problem. And if you want to be one of these people who say, fine, we're not going to do anything, okay, but then then don't whine about the fact that, oh, we just got a busload of people who entered this country illegally who are now expecting to find some place to stay. You, you, you can't have it both ways, can you? 855-616-1620, we discuss. Hop on the bus, you don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key and get yourself free. The Gunslinger is back where he belongs. Catch Brett Favre with Jen, Gabe, and Chewy Monday mornings at 7.30 on 94.5 ESPN PN and again at 5.15 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News on WTMJ. Presented by Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin and sponsored by Concordia University of Wisconsin and Island Resort and Casino. All right, over the weekend, the, the mayor of D.C. and the mayor of New York went, went public once again, complaining that, gee, over the last couple months, there have been buses. We, we total between the two of us about 10,000 people who entered the country illegally in Texas and Arizona. They, they've been bussed up to our communities. We, we need the pen. We need, we need help. We need the Pentagon to step in. We need the National Guard to step in. We need all this type of stuff. Now, 5,000 people are arrested every day illegally crossing the border and my argument would be that's the tip of the iceberg these mayors who intellectually say well we're a sanctuary city we we want open borders or the equivalent of that the mandela barnes people of the world now when all of a sudden gee we, we've just got another busload of people coming into new york city that we have to figure out where are we going to house them how are we going to feed them what sort of schooling are we going to give now it's like oh my gosh this is a huge problem 855-616-1620 let's start with patrick patrick you're on wtmj good afternoon Good afternoon. My take on this is the cities that are complaining, the mayors of these big cities that are complaining, have already got the Democratic vote locked in. 
they are historically voting Democratic, and the purpose of letting all these immigrants in is to infiltrate the country, parts of the country, that typically and historically votes Republican. And they are using these um, immigrants to vote the way they want, kind of like bribe, and also that's why they don't want us to have photo ID when we vote, because well, you can't. Well, Patrick, th- thanks, Okai. I think you're, you're overthinking this. I, I mean, I, f- first of all, first of all, the I mean, if there's some master plot years and years from now to get people citizenship and let them vote, I I, I don't know. But the, the immediate fact, what you got to keep in mind is it's Republican governors of Arizona and it's Republican governor of Texas that are shipping busloads of of people to these various communities. Now, what, what here's what's going on. I mean, it's this this isn't part of some like large scale plot. This is a, a concerted effort on the part of these governors of these states to call attention to the problems, the real-world problems that you experience if you're, you're not in flyover country. You know, if you are, you know, you share a border with Mexico and you have 5,000 people coming in a day who are arrested, it is an overwhelming drain on state and local resources as well as federal resources. And it's fine for, again, mayors in D.C. and mayors in New York City to sit and preach about, oh, we're going to be a sanctuary city and we need to have these open borders and we shouldn't have these restrictive sort of controls. It's fine to do that because you have no skin in the game at at all well this i mean what's going on here is the governors are saying okay fine you think this is all so wonderful you see what we have to deal with and we're just going to give you a microcosm like i say it's they estimate it's only about ten thousand people which is a a lot of people i guess if you have to deal with it but it's just a, a small portion of the number of people that they have to deal with on a daily basis if you again are in Arizona or in Texas. It's a way of calling attention to the fact that what is going on at the border is a complete and total disaster. And it's been a disaster pretty much since Biden took over. And I'm not saying it was in great shakes with Trump. And I I had issues with the let's build the wall thing and stuff like that. But it's gotten materially worse. And if it's not in your own backyard, you don't necessarily see that. Well, that's changing this whole dynamic. Let's talk to Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. I have two words that you're for. Tough stuff, too bad for you. I applaud these Arizona mayors and governors. Uh, They made their bed over there in New York and Washington. Let them sleep in it. Well, yes, exactly. That's, That's right. And maybe... Maybe, maybe, maybe this will, I don't know, make some of them rethink their policies of, oh, we're going to be sanctuary cities. Well, you want to be a sanctuary city, that's fine. Now now, now, embrace it. Here, we'll just give you a little taste of what happens in Arizona and what happens in Texas on a regular basis. No, thanks for the call. That's, that, that, that is exactly it. Now, of course, you, you, I'm just saying you can't have it both ways. If you want to say, all right, I don't think we should have these limitations on the border, and don't you understand the Statue of Liberty, and we're a country of immigrants, and things like that, okay, you you can make that argument, but then maybe you have to share the pain. And I got a couple people saying, well, you know, they, they don't get the federal resources that, uh, like some of the border states do. That is true. 
but they also, it's not exclusively a federal problem. It is a local problem. It is a statewide problem. And those are what requires those various resources. And again, it's interesting to me, well, we want them, we want them, we want them, except no, not not here. This is the ultimate NIMBY stuff. It's the ultimate not in my backyard. Texas, if you're overwhelmed with all these problems, fine, you know, you figure out a way to deal with it. Arizona, okay, concerned about drug cartels and things like that, concerned about all these people, you know, um, again, just coming across the border and having to be provided for. Too bad. You deal with that. But don't send them to Washington, D.C. Don't send them to New York City. No, I I think this is a great idea. If anything, I think might expand it. I think, like I say, Joe Biden's hometown, you know, pick a place in Delaware. You know, maybe a couple busloads of people to Delaware would get the attention. Los Angeles. Los Angeles wants this. All right. I would I would start broadening this so people recognize that it is an out of control problem that is more than just intellectual for at least some people. One final thought on what we were talking about before, the the fact that these governors of Texas and uh, Arizona are, are busing at, and, and look, this isn't, we're putting you on a bus and we're we're making you, you go. These are people who volunteer, for, who come into the country illegally and got one, actually one or two texters, probably just one. Oh, this, this, is, this is terrible. This, this is in, inhumane. You're using these people as political pawns. Oh, spare me! The New York, the New York Post addressed that. That's kind of the ar- argument that the 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 governor, uh, the, the mayor of New York, uh, this is it's in, inhumane. You're, you're putting people on a on a bus ride, and this is this is the way the New York Post wrote wrote this. Adams claims that sending migrants on a roughly thirty hour bus trip to New York is inhumane. That's the mayor of the city of New York. Where is his self-righteousness when it comes to the fact that Biden's open border policies are enticing illegal immigrants to trek, mostly by walking, thousands of miles through treacherous regions in Central America and Mexico, often subjected to rape and torture? Many of those migrants are killed or otherwise lose their lives attempting to come here. But that does not trouble Biden enough to meaningfully discourage such illegal immigration. To do so would violate his campaign promise to allow open border policies if elected. Adams, just like many Americans, is either unaware or refuses to acknowledge that the open border policies he supports and Biden imposed funnel billions of dollars to the drug cartels that profit off everyone crossing the border illegally. Inhumanity is the United States policy that aids and abets the cartels and their U.S.-based strugglers and human traffickers. Yeah, for everybody, oh, they're using these poor people as political pawns by saying, hey, you want to go to Washington, D.C.? Well, okay, you think that they're not being used as political pawns by a government policy that encourages them to, uh, again, put their life at risk traveling through Central America and Mexico. I mean, give me a break. The self-righteousness that you get from some people when it comes to this. Okay, let us switch gears. Sometimes you have policies that are announced that sound really good when when you first hear them, and then when you think about them a little bit, you, you start to realize the, the problems. And sometimes there'll be a policy that will be announced that it will be embraced. And it's like 80% of the people think it's a great idea. And then as you think about it a little bit, it gets less support and less support and less support. The flip side of this is sometimes you get a policy that gets announced and people, well, I'm not sure if that's going to work. And then as time goes on, more and more people begin to support it. I'll give you an example of that from the left. Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, incredibly 
controversial and arguably very unpopular when it was first announced. Matter of fact, I think it was Obamacare in and of itself was one of the driving forces behind essentially a a Republican wave election in in 2014, which allowed Republicans to um, take control of the Senate and the House of of Representatives. Um, So it it was, and I think you can argue that over time people have mellowed on on their view of the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare. And when uh, Donald Trump was president for his first two years and Republicans controlled the House and the Senate, couldn't figure out how to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So that that's the flip side, something that might be unpopular in many quarters when it's first passed, but people grow to accept it more. That happens a lot of times with entitlement programs. And then there's policies that are unpopular when they are announced, at least among the general public. And the more people think about them, the more people become convinced that it's it's not a good idea. Now, lately, I have been out and about a, a, a lot. I've been out and about at a number of events, not necessarily station events or anything like that, but I've, I've been out and about in public a lot. And when I'm out and about in public, people come up and they, they want to talk about different issues and how do you see this issue or how do you see that issue. I can say without hesitation, over the course of the last week, doesn't matter where I go, when people come up and they want to talk about the program or issues, what, what I hear about repeatedly is the Biden student loan fiasco. The announcement that he made last week with all this fanfare saying that we were going to all right, forgive $10,000 in student loan debt for everybody who makes up to $125,000 a year. And if you're married and you and your spouse make a quarter million dollars or less adjusted gross income, you can write off $20,000 of your debt. This is going to cost the taxpayers somewhere between 330 and 500 billion dollars in this just complete and total giveaway there are estimates that suggest that it will cost the average taxpayer about two thousand dollars so if you are paying taxes and living on a fixed income and pensions or whatever you'll be glad to know that you are contributing two thousand dollars so I don't know. Somebody who got a, a degree from from Yale gets to write off ten grand of their student loan debt. So I, I know Biden, when he did this, was was hoping to pander to the the sort of extreme left of of the Democratic Party, the, the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, who want to essentially, you know, they're in favor of like getting rid of all student loan debt. So I, I know he was trying to pander to to that, but the idea was we're going to essentially bribe voters. And I say legal sort of bribe by there's going to be all these voters. We've suddenly just given them $10,000, and they are going to be just so thrilled with this that they're going to run out, and they're going to vote for everybody with a D after their name in the November election because we, we've, just, we've given them $10,000. Won't they be thrilled? Well, okay, maybe those people will be thrilled. But for all the other people in the country, the people who went to college on student loans and paid back their student loans over the years, can I see a show of hands? The people who uh, didn't want to have to have student loans, so they worked through school. The families who, for example, over the course of their lifetime gave up vacations, gave up new cars, etc., etc., because they wanted to save money so their kids didn't have to take student loans so they wouldn't be saddled with. All, all those people. The people who never went to college 
um, because they decided they couldn't afford college or college wasn't right for them. They're now paying for this. The people who got out of high school and who didn't want to go to college but instead wanted to start their own business. The 18-year-old who said, look, I have a love for landscaping, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take out a loan and buy a truck and some equipment and start my own business. You're out of luck. You're just completely and totally out of of luck. So th- this policy has been out for, for less than a week. I believed it was unpopular when he announced it, and I thought it was going to have huge political ramifications. Five or six days into this, as people get the opportunity to think about it, I think more and more people just do not like it. To give you an idea of how bad this is, okay, Mandela Barnes, who is way, 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 way to the left of, of Joe Biden, He's even unwilling to come out and say that he supports something like this. Now, of course he does, but he knows that it's not in his political interest to to do this. So even he's quiet about this. Will there be a backlash against this policy from all the people who now have chump written on their forehead because they paid their student loans back? or they paid their kids' student loans back, or they went to some other college than maybe they would have chosen to. And what is going to be the effect of this? Because this now greenlights colleges to continue to increase their tuition, which is one of the underlying problems to begin with. They can now increase their tuition because the implication is, don't worry, you're not, borrow whatever you want, the government's going to come in a year from now with student loan reduction plan number two, and we're going to wipe out another 10000 or 20000 or or whatever. I, this, and it's, apart from being incredibly inflationary and the stock market struggling again today after being down 1000 on Friday because inflation is out of control, this fuels inflation. So you've got the whipsaw of it's hurting the economy and it's just fundamentally unfair. So, all right, we've had a week to think about this. I think this is getting even worse reviews among people, and I think people are mad as you know what about this. 855-616-1620. Is this plan sitting any better with you today than it did a few days ago? 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's talk to Troy calling us from Door County. Hi, Troy. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. As I was telling the screener, I, I, you know, I've had a week to process this, and, and the feeling today is, is just the same as when it was announced last week. Just uh, angry, frustrated, because it's it just plain out is not fair to oh, oh, I'm sorry. Troy, your cell phone cut out. I apologize. I, um, I, I, the sense I get is that you didn't think that you, know, you were any happier about this before. Nope, I... I think that that's absolutely correct. I don't think the general population is. Now, I'm I'm hearing a couple texts from people who just refuse to acknowledge that Joe Biden can do anything wrong. Oh, and they're saying, well, how is this different than the PPP um, loans, which were, you know, given at the time of the pandemic to keep businesses going? First of all, it's apples and oranges. Okay, the, the PPP loans. Now, keep in mind, we had the pandemic. You had the government then come and tell these businesses, you are going to close down. You are not going to be allowed to operate. Restaurants, bars, you've got to close down. Um, Jewelry stores, you've got to close down. We're going to let Walmart sell jewelry, but the small jewelry store, you have to close down. So you had the government in the face of, 
a, a an epidemic. Now, you can argue that the government overreacted. I will make that argument. But nonetheless, that's what Tony Evers did in Wisconsin. That is what the government did nationwide. We closed down businesses. So the government order businesses to be shut down. So what they did is they had the PPP loans, which allowed the businesses to keep people on the payrolls, you know, while we were working our way towards the vaccine and things like this. If you didn't have the PPP loans, all these jobs that were out there and all these businesses would have shut down and presumably shut down permanently. Now, the decision was made that a lot of these PPP loans would be forgiven as long as you met certain criteria. Those criteria being, did you spend enough of the money on what it was supposed to do? That is like keeping people on the payroll and, and all that. You can argue, if you want, that, okay, maybe maybe the PPP loan shouldn't have been forgiven. I don't know. Talk to Joe Biden about that. Maybe you could argue that people should have been made to pay them back. But to equate a PPP loan caused by government orders shutting down businesses during a pandemic with the decision that somebody made, gee, I want to go to X school, so I'm going to take out a loan and I'm going to promise to pay it back, but now I don't want to pay it back. To equate that with a PPP loan that was necessitated by something the government did in the first place in the face of a national health crisis, sorry, it, it's it's apples and oranges. And I understand that there's some people out there who recognize that this is a bad idea, but yet they're grasping at straws because, heaven forbid, we should say that Joe Biden has done anything anything wrong, and, and heaven forbid we should even acknowledge that any of this stuff, this inflationary stuff, this stuff that plays a huge chunk of Americans is nothing but chumps. Uh, how dare we be able to criticize something like that? So we've got to try to equate it with a PPP loan. Sorry, it, it just doesn't hold water. Sue, Sue, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi. I've been bothered by this for a couple of days now, but there have been some, some good conversations that have come out of it. I taught for 40 years, and Several of my students are in the position of now owing more than they initially borrowed for their college loans because it's been brokered three times to a different place. And one of my former students in particular borrowed $90,000 to get her degree and now owes 120, and she's been paying regularly all along. There's something inherently wrong with this system besides the fact that the colleges are charging tuition and they have endowments and they have money, but they keep raising tuition. That's part of the problem. But the other problem is how are these loans being handled? Mm -hmm. I didn't go into my mortgage and say, now I want my mortgage to be $30,000 higher than it is after I've paid on it every month for three years, but that's what some of these kids are finding themselves into. And so we've we've had a really good discussion, but we don't have a lot of answers and we have a lot of frustration hmm. well, on Sue, how that college loan system works. Yeah, see, and here, here is, thank, Sue, thanks a lot for the call. I, I'm going to say something I've been saying during this entire discussion. I, I think you raise a very, very fair point. I think what arguably would have been appropriate to do if you want to give relief to the people that are are made these these obligations, and you know nobody nobody made you go and held a gun to your head and required you to sign that stuff on, sign on the dotted line, 
I think something, if the federal government wanted to do something like say, look, we expect you to honor your obligations, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to absorb these and we're going to change, we're going to give you a fixed interest rate. We're going to allow you to restructure these loans so you are paying what is closer to a market-based interest rate, whether it's 3% or 4% or 5% or, or whatever would be fair based on where interest rates now are, as opposed to the, the 10 or the 15% or, or whatever is going on there. So I, I'm not saying that you've got a perfect system, but to just simply say we're going to just forgive all this stuff, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think that that's I don't think that that's right. That is also for people who say, oh, this is helping the middle class, no, the vast majority of this relief, it you get ten thousand bucks. You can write off ten thousand bucks if you make a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars a year. You make a quarter million dollars a year. You and your spouse, you can write off, you know, twenty thousand dollars. Now, if if you were arguing, hey, if you're um. I, I don't know. We we really want to help people who've gotten out of of college and and they're just they're they're not they're not in their careers or the jobs weren't there or whatever and so they're making fifty grand or something like that. You could at least make a stronger argument. No, no. This this is nothing but an ill considered vote buying scheme because we want to make it broad enough. I'm I'm sorry. This isn't you're making a quarter million dollars a year. You and your spouse and and the federal government, the taxpayer. It's not the federal government. It's the taxpayers. They're expected to come out and 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 buy out $20,000 of your student loan. How insulting is that at, at this? If if you wanted to target it to, uh, again, lower or, or real middle-class relief, you would limit it to like $50,000, but that doesn't reach enough voters. So we, and then we try to portray this like it's middle-class relief. Jeff, this is so unfair to those who worked and did the right thing. We created an EdVest account for my daughter, and she started working at age 16. She always worked two jobs while in college and has just completed her master's degree. I also worked two jobs so I could help and lessen the amount of loans she's needed. She would need. She attended private schools all the way through and has paid off her loans along the way. She's down to $2,500, which she plans to pay off this month. Why shouldn't others have to work their way through? Well, because... I don't know. The president thinks that you guys are chumps. That That's sort of what the bottom line of this entire thing is. You know, the other aggravating thing is that people have not been required to pay one dime on their student loans for the last two plus years. I understand why there was a moratorium that was put in place in March of 2020, because, again, you had the pandemic. The government, remember, just pretty much shut down between COVID and government orders, this country pretty much shut down. So I understand why, you know, we put in these moratoriums. Okay, you don't have to pay your student loans back um, and interest isn't going to accrue and you don't have to pay your rent and you don't have to do this. We have all these limits. All right. The emergency has long since passed. Matter of fact, the unemployment rate for college graduates is like 2 or 3%. I mean, anybody who wants to get a job can get a job. So something that might have been justified in 2020, well, there's no justification for it now. But again, in the vote-buying scheme that Joe Biden has, you're not going to have to make a payment even if you don't qualify for relief or don't intend to put in for relief, you're not going to have to make a payment till January of 2023, if then, conveniently a couple months after the, the midterm elections. All I am saying is I understand there's some people who think Biden can do no wrong. There's some people who are saying, hey, this is just great. I'm getting $10,000 in free money. But from a political perspective, 
from an economic perspective, from a fairness perspective, this is wrong on so many levels. And if Biden thinks it's going to be a political winner, I think he's in for a rude awakening. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have you with us. Alex was referring to this story in his newscast, and I want to bring you up to date on it and then ask a a question. Um, Another day, another, and and you could fill in the blank, another person dead as a result of road rage, another person dead in in a shooting. Well, you, you could do that on, again, pretty much any day. But today, another day, another person dead because of a fatal hit and run so here here's the deal this is saturday night sunday morning so it's 12 30 a.m sunday morning yesterday so um milwaukee police apparently what they say happened is 12 30 p.m in in the, the area around the deer district i mean it, it's sixth and juno so to give you an idea that's that's you know Within a couple blocks of the Deer District, they have a young man who is in the crosswalk about 12.30 a.m. So, I, you know, and it's, I don't know, bars open. I mean, I don't know what he was doing down there, but it's, it's 12.30 a.m. And so you've got places that are open and things like that. He is in the crosswalk. Um, his name is Xavier Shaw. Um, at that point in time, they have the driver of a black pickup truck runs a red light heading northbound on 6th street hits and kills him um he's was taken to the hospital died at the the hospital and then of course drives off and so now what, what's happening is the authorities have, have put out a picture of of the truck and they're describing it as a black 2021-2022 Dodge Ram 1500 TRX with amber lights in the hood scoop, flashing amber lights on both side mirrors, and possibly flashing headlights. So it's a relatively distinctive vehicle. They say the vehicle should have front-end damage. Yes, because the driver hit and killed somebody and then drove off, leaving him, well, he was dead, and you know, leaving him to die. Um, no effort to render assistance or anything like that. And authorities are putting out a picture of, they've got, there were, there were cameras that kind of caught the intersection. So they've got, um, they've got pictures of this that are in fact, you know, out there and they're asking for the public's help. But, but here you have another one of these examples of somebody, I, I don't know if the vehicle was speeding or not, but I know the vehicle blew a red light. And so, and then the driver has, has now driven off. Now, a lot of times when this happens, there there's all sorts of reasons behind it. Lots of times people have been drinking, and they, they don't want to stop and do that. In this particular case, I don't know if that was the situation, but I do know that after obviously knowing that you've hit a person, you know somebody has now driven off. I will also say this, that these hit and runs, as, as from a law enforcement perspective, they are easier to solve than some other types of crimes. And I'm not saying that they're easy. I said they are easier to solve because you've got to do something with this truck. You know, there, there are people that know who was driving this vehicle. There's unquestionable that. Now, will they come forward? I don't know. There's also damage to the vehicle. So somewhere over the course of the last 24, 36 hours, there, there is a vehicle 
probably hidden somewhere in, in somebody's garage or something like that 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 has extensive front end damage. And so it's a you're in a situation where if you take it to a body shop or something like that, that body shop will undoubtedly report you. There's only so much you can do to hide that that damage that is there. So sooner or later somebody is going to come forward and they're going to say, hey, you know, that that looks a lot like my neighbor Joe's truck. It's, it sounds like a perfect description of that. And, and Joe's truck, um, gee, it, it's now, you know, in his garage and it's pulled in and, and he used to always keep it in his driveway. So it, it it's a case that my guess is they will be able to clear it sometime, again, sooner rather than later. They, we don't clear all the hit and runs, but in this particular situation, with all the information they have, I got to believe that at some point in time, in the relatively near future, somebody's going to come forward and identify who it was that, while blowing through the red light, hit and killed this. I think he's a 23 year old young man, and his his mom is doing interviews and stuff. I mean, just, just how terrible. I mean, imagine imagine how you would feel if. Um, you know, you were in a situation where all of a sudden you get this call and, and your son is um, actually his full name, according to his mom, was Xavier Cassandra Davis. Her name is Gloria Shaw. So, um, you know, we're in that particular situation. All right. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here, Here is my question. These hit and runs causing death occur on a semi-regular basis basis. And they are, of course, a logical extension of the the reckless driving problem that that we have with people who just decide that we're going to blow through red lights, we're going to drive at high rates of speed, don't know how fast the guy was going or the gal was going, but I do know that they blew through this red light. And part of the, the thing that I think happens is we don't we don't have enough accountability. So here you have somebody who has killed someone else by blowing through this particular intersection. Don't know anything about the criminal record. And again, they're going to catch the person. But here is my question. Once they catch the person who knowingly and intentionally drove away from the scene, leaving somebody for dead after hitting them, our number is 855-616-1620. What is an appropriate sentence for them? I mean, is this one where, gee, it, it's, you know, maybe there's some circumstances behind this, or is it possible that they didn't know what they did? Um, but in this particular case, this isn't a dart-out situation. By that, I mean, you know, somebody didn't run out from between, you know, cars so the person couldn't stop. Somebody, I don't know, was crossing against the light, and you're in the intersection legitimately. This is someone who blew a red light and hit and killed a pedestrian. Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm thinking, you know, anything less than a sentence of at least fifteen years is just an incredible miscarriage of justice. What do you think? Get that passport ready. WTMJ is sending you on a once-in-a-lifetime trip to see the green and gold play in London. You could qualify for this amazing trip to London, including airfare, hotel stay, transportation, and two tickets to the game at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Tune in to Wisconsin's Morning News every day at 710 for your chance to win. It's the Great Britain Giveaway, only on 620 WTMJ. For official contest rules, visit WTMJ.com. I... 
Look, I, I understand there's a lot of stuff about the out-of-control crime around here that just frustrates the heck out of me. Uh, the, the senseless spike in murders, the, the car thefts, which, while down from last year's record, are still an astronomical number. But it's, it's this reckless driving, and it's the aftermath of reckless driving that I think I find as frustrating as anything. I mean, the latest story, Sunday morning, 1230 at night, 6th and Juneau, which is kind of by Pfizer Forum in that general area, you have a 23-year-old man who's in the intersection he's just crossing the street he's hit and killed by someone driving a 2021 2022 big old you know pickup truck with all sorts of you know bells and whistles on it car hits and kills the guy drives off the car is now probably being hidden and or stashed somewhere in the milwaukee area because obviously you know just like if you ever hit a deer or something like that i mean you hit a person there's all sorts of damage to the front end so there are people out there who know what this person or persons did, and and they drove off. I am confident that the police will, at some point in time, hopefully sooner rather than later, catch the person who's done it. And and when when they do, I mean, this... It seems to me these are one of these situations where I, I don't want to hear, well, I don't know the person got scared and they drove off or there was this extenuating circumstance or there's that extending circumstance. It's one thing to blow through a red light and hit and kill somebody. It's another thing to drive off as opposed to driving to the nearby police. If you don't feel comfortable stopping at the scene, yet you drive three blocks to the nearby police station and you say, this is exactly what happened, instead of driving off in this particular fashion and cowering in a cowardly manner to, you know, again, see what the consequences are. To me, the consequences are you need to go to jail for a long long time. Jeff, vehicular manslaughter should be 25 to 45 years. Hopefully they catch the person. If I had to guess, I would guess that the person was drunk. Well, that that could be. And we don't know the speed. I don't know how fast the car was going. I do know it, it didn't have the right away, so it blew a red light. Most, I want to say most. And I, I Anecdotally, I agree with the texter that the reason... The most common reason why somebody does this is because they are drunk and because they want to get away because they think it's going to be worse if they stay on the scene and it turns out they're drunk. Now, actually, from a penalty perspective, it's identical. Um, but it, I understand why people would end up doing this. And, and of course, the idea is, okay, I've hit and I've killed this person, but now I'm going to drive off and I'll, I'll turn myself in at some point in time or I'll wait and see if they catch me, but I'm going to, I'll be sober by, by that time. Give me 12 hours or 24 hours to, to sober up and then they won't be able to prove that I was drunk. And so that won't be an aggravating circumstance. Um, yeah, um, let's see. Jeff, the, this Ram TRX is very sought after. They're a very rare version of the pickup truck. They shouldn't be too difficult to find who owns one. Yeah, that, that's, again, my guess. This isn't This isn't a ubiquitous sort of, I don't know, pick, pick a car. That pick a, it's not a Honda Accord or something like that. I mean, it's a, it's a unique pickup truck with all sorts of different features on it. So my guess is there's a relatively limited number of people who, who own this vehicle to begin with. And then once you look at all the bells and whistles that are on it, my guess is authorities can start to narrow it down. I believe that they're going to solve this case sooner rather than later. But once they do, I mean, I just think they have to, you know, come down like just come down on whoever's driving this uh like 
like just a ton of bricks. This cannot happening. Jeff, this kind of reckless driving is way out of hand. 20 to life would be a very good sentence. Jeff, lock them up. They had to have known they hit someone, and if they were high on drugs or drunk, add additional time to the sentence. Enough is enough. Start enforcing the law. How many stories like this do we have to hear about? Well, yeah, that's that's exactly it. I mean, how many of these stories do we have to hear about? Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Um, I think there needs to be a very serious crackdown on driving-related crimes in the Milwaukee area, and I think this would be a really good place to start. I, I definitely agree with you that there should be at least a 15-year prison sentence, and I think there, if financial reparations could be made to the victim victim's family, I think that those should be done. And and then I just think there needs to be a, a, a lot more of a deterrent to this kind of driving in the area. I'm at a point where... I, I'm i afraid to bring my car downtown, to be honest with you, and I rarely do for, like, concerts and sporting events. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, it, I mean, thanks for, well, it's also, it's not just the car thing, but it's also the, the whole notion of, I mean, this guy's just crossing the street. You know, that that's, and thanks for the call, Jeff, he's just crossing the street. You know, that that's the thing. He's not jaywalking. He didn't run out between cars. No, I mean, he he's in the crosswalk, and that, that could have been you. I mean, that that could have been me. I was downtown. I wasn't out that late, but I mean, it's but still. But it doesn't matter whether it's twelve thirty or whether it's nine o'clock at night. I mean, Thursday night, um, you know, Fran and I went out to eat with friends, and we were we were downtown. We were kind of in the third ward stuff, and you know, um, you know, yes. And for example, some of our friends we parked right around the corner from the restaurant, but a couple people, you know, walked a couple blocks to a to a um, to a where they ended up you know, the, the parking lot where they put their car. So they ended up walking through here. And, and, and yeah, I mean, that, that could have been them at 9 o'clock when you get somebody that drives through. This is this is just what happens on a regular basis, unfortunately. And, and we don't hear about it a lot of times because most occasions it doesn't result in somebody being dead. But it, it could easily. And, and that's why this is such a big deal. It's also why we don't do anybody any favors when, you know, we catch people who run through red lights and then lead the cops on a high-speed chase in the stolen car or whatever, when we just slap them on the wrist and send them back to continue to do that. You need to get serious about this stuff. People are dying. Enough is enough. The Brewers have their sights set on October. Things are heating up as the crew welcomes the Pittsburgh Pirates to American Family Field for a three-game set. Mr. Baseball, Bob Uecker, has the call all series long, sponsored by Steinhoffel's Labor Day Sale. Our coverage starts this evening at 6 o'clock. WTMJ is the home of the Brewers baseball. Actually, I'm going tonight. Matter of fact, going with a whole bunch of friends. We've got a, we've got a group of um, I think there's there's seven of us. I was just starting to do the counting, and I was thinking I'm on a one ticket short. No, we got seven people, so so we're going. I, I was at the game. I was at the game on Friday night, Alex Crow. That was the game where the Chicago Cubs only got two hits, mm-hmm. but both were two run home runs by mm-hmm. Ian Happ and the Brewers. It, it was in a season where there had been more than their share of ugly losses. It was about as ugly a loss as you possibly can get. Like runners on, um, Freddie Peralta goes six innings of no hit baseball, and 
then errors and walks and first and second none yeah. out and the inability to advance people. It was a micro. <laughs> Friday night was a microcosm of all the bad stuff that the Brewers have done. We uh, we you know we it was an interesting day here in the uh, newsroom yesterday as we were scrambling around getting things going here in the morning and I mistakenly reported that the Brewers were going for the sweep against the Cubs instead uh-huh. of it being a rubber match and someone someone called to let me know still. It was still a fresh wound, I it, will say that. It was still a fresh it, wound from Friday. It was. I mean, it was, in, in some respects, <clears throat> it was a good game because it, the, the Brewers took the lead and then the Cubs came back and the Brewers came back. So it was a back and forth game. And I mean, I, I stayed till the end, but it was one of these frustrating things that, again, just first and second, nobody out and they, they can't figure out a way to score runs. Mm-hmm. And then just, um, you know, the, the first two run home run came after there was an error. You know, it was just, it was just, it was one of those sorts of things and one of these games that if you're in a pennant race you just can't lose and they they've figured out a way to lose it still still tough like you said a microcosm of the season so far but if you look out west and you see what josh Hader's doing with those padres that that still continues to puzzle me as to maybe the brewers uh got out just in time i don't know no i you know obviously there's something going on he blew up yesterday Mm -hmm. or two days ago again so it's um I, he's just, I don't get it, because he's too yeah. good a player to have just fallen apart like that physically. So obviously it tells me there's something mechanically wrong, or maybe it's just his concentration's not where it has to be or whatever, because he's just too good a player yeah. to, to all of a sudden just lose it like that. All I'm saying is you're, you're watching it as a Brewers fan and saying, hey, things definitely could be worse right now. There could be blown saves. There could be a lot more pressure on this organization than there is right now. Bad loss, but they still got the series win, and they're still uh, they're still in the fight for the wild card, I think. And that is Alex Crow, <laughs> the, the, the voice. Yeah. That, that is the glass is half full, Alex Crow. Well, you, you were not... You were not with me walking out of the stadium and listening to people on Friday night. But does, I, I love going to the ball games, and we'll be back there tonight, like I say. So it's a lot of fun. And hopefully, you know, they, you got to figure they got to sweep the Pittsburgh Pirates if they're going to stay in contention. But Fingers who knows? Fingers crossed. Should be, should be a good one, but you should see a win out there tonight. Okay. Should, should see one. Well, I, I, I certainly <laughs> hope so because I didn't see one on Friday. You know, Alex, talking about that, that hit and run, one of our – I'm not really a car guy, but th- that, that pickup truck mm-hmm. struck me as being – it's a distinctive sort of thing. Yeah. Well, one of our texters says, Jeff, the Ram TRX is a special edition with the 700 HP Hellcat, Hellcat motor. There's only around 1,500 or so produced total wow. in 2021 or 2022. It's inconceivable that they would not be able to track down the owner, as I'm sure there's probably not many around town, which is, you, you, you would think. I mean, like I say, it's not, you know, it's not like a 19, yeah. you know, it's, it's not like a 2000, you know, 14 Honda Accord or something like that, a more common sort of car. You know, when I when I saw the pictures, I thought, hey, that's kind of a unique vehicle, but shout out to that texter. I had no idea just how unique. That's pretty interesting. So again, you can see all those pictures online, but if you know someone who recently upgraded or got something new that looks like that, maybe maybe just uh, pass that tip along to police. Well, and, and what do the people think is going to happen here? Like, like I was saying earlier, I mean, hitting. You know, hit and runs are, from a law enforcement perspective, they are often, they're very significant. I don't mean by what I'm going to say to downplay it at all, but they're oftentimes, they're, they're low-hanging fruit because mm-hmm. you've got photos, there may or may not be witnesses, you know what the vehicle is, there's damage to the car. So at, at you, if you take it to a body shop or somewhere else, yeah. what's going to happen is you, you can't. So they're going to have to, they will... You know they'll they'll call it into the cops. So you're sitting there in a situation where you've obviously got a very expensive truck that's 
assuming for the sake of argument that it wasn't stolen, that it doesn't show up in being buried, mm-hmm. abandoned somewhere, you know, it, it's it's in somebody's garage being hidden because yeah. they, you, you've got damage all over the front end, I would expect. I mean, the videos and pictures are the first thing that jumped out in my mind. Think about this area, 6th and Juno. how many people are usually around this area right near Pfizer Forum, how many yeah. businesses are there. There, there are going to be more pictures that pop up and more video of this vehicle and kind of the path that it took. You're right. You think that should be something that should be pretty easy to figure out, at least well, where the vehicle was headed off to, right in which direction. Right, and, and especially if it's that kind of unique a car, I'm sure one of the first things the police do is they start canvassing, you know, free, well, you start with DMV, you mm-hmm. know, and you, and you say, okay, well, how many of these, yeah. ve- I mean, how many of these vehicles are there and what's registered? And you can kind of like narrow down the universe, especially if there's only X number of that are, that are produced. So in the event, I, I hope law enforcement comes to it. And if anybody has any information about this, there's a guy, there's a 23 year old man that's dead, 23 mm-hmm. year old man that is dead here. So if anybody knows who was involved in this and you think you're doing your your friend or your acquaintance or somebody a favor by not coming forward they're going to get caught but the sooner they get caught the the better um when we come back 12.6 million bucks i'll explain we'll discuss all right we were talking about baseball a minute or two ago one of the best players in, in baseball history, I'm not saying he's the best, but a really great player was a player named Mickey Mantle. Now, Mickey Mantle, he, he played for the New York Yankees, spent his entire career with the New York Yankees, 1951 to 1968. Now, I first, I mean, I, I, I remember I started paying attention to baseball maybe a year or two before that. And, and I, I remember, I think I was at a game when I was a, a little kid, and I remember seeing Mickey Mantle. Now, I saw him at the end of his his career, and Mickey Mantle, as great as his career was, it could have been greater. He tore up his knee in, in Yankee Stadium. I, I think the story was they had, how stupid is this? They had, like, like plaques and stuff, as I recall, in the outfield, and he, he or that or a drain or something, he stepped on it, really wrecked, wrecked his knee badly, and he was never exactly the same player. But N- Mickey Mantle w- was a great just a great, great ball player, and he he took over for Joe DiMaggio, who's arguably again one one of the, I think the greatest ball players ever, who also played for the Yankees. But great ball player from he played for the Yankees from 1951 to 1968, um, and and then went on to have, I think, you know, afterwards I think he had he had trouble moving on from you know dealing with with life as as a lot of these professional athletes have. All right. Mickey Mantle's first baseball contract, and I understand we adjusted for inflation and things like that. His first baseball contract paid him seventy five hundred dollars. That's in nineteen fifty one. Now, if you adjust for inflation, that's about the same as um, about seventy thousand dollars. His last contract, which would have been nineteen sixty eight. Paid him about a hundred thousand dollars per year, which is the same as about eight hundred thousand dollars after adjusting for inflation. In total, during his entire seventeen career year career, he earned one million one hundred twenty eight thousand dollars in in salary during during all those years. And you can adjust by the time you adjust for inflation, and now well, it it probably comes to. You know, around ten million dollars or so, even adjusted for in inflation. But of course, 
it wasn't. I bring this up because one of the stories of the weekend is a Mickey Mantle baseball card that was issued by Topps in 1952 um, that if if you bought it, Okay, it would have been sold at one time in one of those wax-wrapped packages that cost either a penny or a nickel. You know, the, the things in, this is how, I mean, I haven't bought base, purchased baseball cards in years and years, but as a kid, you'd go and you'd buy the pack of baseball cards, and they had five of them, and then they had that stick of, like, the, the pink gum that was just almost inedible and things like that. It was just, it was bad. But you'd get that. So th- this this baseball card came in one of those those sets. The card was sold in the last couple days at auction. It's in mint condition. So apparently there's only like two other Mickey Mantle baseball cards that are known to exist from this era that are in this condition. It was sold at auction for $12.6 million early Sunday morning. $12.6 million. Even adjusted for inflation, the value of this one card is as much, or in all likelihood, probably more than even adjusted for inflation, all the money that Mickey Mantle made during his entire 16 or 17 year career. And if you don't adjust for inflation, well, it's 12 times as much. Because he made like over, a little bit over a million dollars in his entire career. This card sold for $12.6 million. Um, this, it's a new high in the sports collectible market um, that has apparently been, been booming this year as people are, are buying this. Um, so $12.6 you know, million. Dollars. And they say that it's in, it's in really, it's in perfect shape. Is it? It's almost perfectly centered, top to bottom, left to right. It's got four sharp corners. The color is beautiful. The fact that it remained in this condition for 70 years prior to being graded is truly a miracle. Um, one of the individuals who bought it, he purchased it in 1991 at a Father's Day baseball card show he was attending. He paid $50,000 for this, which back in 1991 was a record. And so now, 30 years later, it's going for $12.6 you know, million. $12.6 million. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, here, here's my question about this, and I, I never tell people, you know, how to spend their, their money. And if, if you've got, like, a lot of money and this is what you want to do, you want to buy a baseball card with it, I, I guess that's fine. From a perspective of investment, though, I mean, how, how high can this, how high can this go? Did somebody overpay for this or, you know, five or ten years later, if you put this back on the market, will people pay more than $12.6 million for one card? And if so, why? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, to me, this whole thing just screams, you know, bubble. If I guess... If you were a huge Yankee fan and you had, you know, more money than you knew what to do with and you want to spend $12.6 million for a baseball card, that's fine. From an investment perspective, though, 
Now, again, I, I might have made the same argument in 1991 when the guy spent, you know, whatever he spent on it back then. When he paid $50,000 for a card, I might have said, is he nuts then? Well, now he's got two, uh, selling it for $12 million. Can, can the market continue to go up? Are these good investments? And, and who would buy them? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Well, here, here's the story behind this Mickey Mantle card that just sold for $12.6 million two days ago. It, to, to give you an idea, the second most valuable baseball card was a card from Honus Wagner that sold for $7.25 million. But, but here's the deal. 51, 1951, Mickey Mantle was a rookie trying to make it to the major leagues. He was injured, like I was saying, while chasing a fly ball in the World Series. So the next season, 1952, there was a question, was he going to be able to come back or whatever? He returned to the Yankees as a starting center fielder. Topps baseball cards began a print run for for the cart. I don't know that he was going to be, they weren't even sure if he was going to be back for the 52 season. So I, I think in the, like the original run, they, they didn't make a Mickey Mantle card. So they started a, a Mickey Mantle card like later in the season. And apparently it's like number 311, 311, uh, I think, just that's the number it was assigned. But what happened is they, they didn't get it done. Um, it arrived too late for the 1952 season. So the unsold stock, most of these like weren't included in those packs of gum and stuff. Apparently, Tops destroyed them. So there's only a handful of this particular card that's out there. And um, this is, like, uh, like I say, it's a very, very rare card. But still, $12.6 million. Dollars now. I, I never tell people, you know, how how to spend their money. And I guess if you got twelve point six million dollars sitting around and you can invest in a baseball card, but is it really an investment? Will this continue to go up? Now, I admit, if you had told me back in nineteen ninety one that somebody spent fifty thousand dollars for this card, I would have thought that they would have been nuts. But now, I mean, they thirty years later, they're selling it for twelve million eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, if you look at the art world lately, the market has been flooded with imposters that are ruining resale values and bringing down overall values. Baseball cards are very difficult to fake, and there are so few good ones, and of any sport, I see the value increasing. We should have all bought some Michael Jordan rookie cards in the 80s. You know, we would be rich. Jeff, I think baseball cards, depending on the player and the condition of the card, are as good as investing in classic muscle cars if you have the funds for it. I mean, see, I guess that's the question is, have we gotten to the point where baseball cards, those things that so many of us bought as kids, and then I'm embarrassed to admit this, but you know, put them behind, you took a clothespin and put them on the spike and the, the spokes of your bicycle wheel. So it made that like clicking noise as, as you rode around. Not that I don't think any of us hopefully didn't do it with a Mickey Mantle 311, but you know, it is, is it is it like art? It is like owning a rare Mickey Mantle baseball card. Moving forward, is that going to be like owning a, an original Monet or a Picasso or something like that? Jeff, the value of these, the card market is especially insane now, especially if they're graded. I sold some cards recently for almost 10 times the price that I would have received pre-pandemic. Yeah, that's what they're saying. I mean, the pandemic has... You know, when, when people couldn't go out because the government shut down all the businesses and things like that, it, it it inspired, like, again, people to start revisiting some of these things. And I mean, I, I mean, I appreciate collectibles. It's just at some point in time, you have to wonder 
whether there is a limit to this or not. Jeff, I would say that it's a risky business because the younger generation doesn't really value stuff like our generation. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question about the the stuff is for for people who Mickey Mantle is just kind of a, you, first of all, you got to be a baseball fan. And secondly, Mickey Mantle is just kind of a, a name that, that's out there. You never saw him play, and it, it's 70 years ago. Is that, for future generations, is it going to have the same value and the, the same meaning? And and can you ever get your $12.6 bucks out of it? Or maybe do you even care? I mean, it's just something, I want this because nobody else has it, so I'm willing to spend $12.6 million. Let's talk to Scott. Scott, you're on WTMJ. How are you doing, Jeff? Good. What do you think? Uh, the question is, okay, so you spend over $12 million. You say it's in pristine shape, crisp corners and everything. How do you maintain that condition so you are more that you're going to get your money back? Yeah, well, I, I, mean, I, I spill a cup of coffee on it, you know? Well, I, 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 but, and, well that, see, that's the other point. And then what do you... What do you do with it? Because you do want to maintain it. So do you put it in a, in a, in a safety deposit box, you know, somewhere? Do you hide it away in one of these hermetically sealed sort of things? Because, I mean, you, see, if I had something like that, I'd want to share it. I'd want to display it. If I had, if I had a, yeah, I mean, if I had, if I had an original Monet or I had a Picasso or I had something like that, I'd want to, I'd want to put it on the wall. You know, I mean, I'd want to, right, I'd want to be a place where I could see it. But at the same time, it's kind of like, don't get anywhere near the thing. I, it's, it's, I don't, I guess I just don't have the, I guess I don't have the stomach for the high-end collectible market. I guess I, I don't know what, you're right. What do you do with the thing? Yeah. Uh, no, thanks for calling. I don't, I, I, again, and, and, and maybe it's, maybe you don't buy it as an investment. Maybe you just buy it because you have, you know, again, it's God's way of telling you you have too much money, and you you just decide, okay, I, I want this because I'm a fan. It's a collectible. I, I want to just keep it, and I don't care if I'm doing it as an investment. From an investment perspective, you, you just have to wonder. Um, I'm looking at, the, okay, the top 10 highest prices paid for sports cards. This would be one. Then there's two Honus Wagner cards, one for $7.25 million, one for six point six. A Mickey Mantle 1952 card, um, similar to this one, but a different listing. That's 5.2 million. Um, let's see. Wayne Gretzky 1979 OPG card, 3.75 million. I just, I don't know. I, I guess, and, and you know, people are going out there and they're buying these things and they're hoping to hold them and hoping they end up getting to be rare. And if if you're the proud owner of the Mickey Mantle card from 1952, 12.5 million, I enjoy it, enjoy it, and also enjoy having that kind of money that you could spend on a baseball card. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Uh, um, Alex, have you have you been following what's happened to Josh Hader since that trade? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a rough one for him, hasn't it? I, there, there's an editorial, in the, there's a piece in the New York Post today. Okay, so they, they trade him to San Diego, who, by the way, as an aside, have the ugliest uniforms in, in Major League Baseball. They're like brown and uh, yellow. Well, <laughs> right, and then they've got the, the, this other, it's kind of like their equivalent of the... Um, of of like the Brewers, the, their baby blue jersey. It's like mm-hmm. it's like this this 
ugly light green and pink. It's just, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're uniquely, at least in my opinion, they're uniquely awful. But anyways, here's the deal. Yesterday, against the, the they're playing Kansas City, mm-hmm. Hader gave up six earned runs on five hits and two walks in a third of an inning. Man. I mean, third of an inning. He he got bumped last week from his closer role, mm-hmm. and so um, since joining San Diego, he has an earned run average of twenty three point fourteen. And and so, but here's here's the weird thing: his first nineteen appearances this season with the Brewers, he didn't give up a single run, mm-hmm. earned or unearned. And then he, he had that kind of like rough week before the trade, but it's been a complete disaster since he got to San Diego. You gotta wonder, like you said, if something happened that the Brewers knew about where it's like, hey, we're, uh, we're out of the Josh Hader business at this point, but I don't, I don't know. There was also that game he had against the, the Nationals as a member of the Padres when he like completely overthrew just throwing the ball even to first baseman on a routine play and allowed the inning to keep going. They got more runs. He has, even routine plays, he's he's been struggling lately, this for sure. Is, the local paper down the San Diego Union-Tribune says, His troubles Sunday were a continuation of the issues that got him demoted from the closer's role a little more than a week ago. A general inability to... Pop-up ad gets in the way as I'm trying to read something. A general inability to command his pitches, failing to get the ball in the strike zone too often, and not keeping it from sweet spots when he did find the, the zone. So, I mean, I... I, I've always said I, I like Josh Hader. I mean, I interviewed him a couple times. I, I thought he was a nice. I thought he is. He is a nice young man and stuff. But man, when when you lose it, you just lose it in a big way. I guess so. Maybe it's a case of the yips, like you could see in anything else when like, you just lose it, like you said. But uh, hopefully, you'll be able to get it back. Hopefully, as a fan of the guy, not a fan of the Brewers, who are going to be competing against the Padres and don't want to don't want to have that one come back to bite them. Well, well, exactly. That that's the interesting thing because again, the the Brewers are um, a game and a half behind the Padres. They actually have the same number of losses, but the Padres have three more wins for that that last wild card spot. And um, I, you, you do have to to look at it, I guess, and figure that. You know, I mean, as, as it turns out, I guess maybe the Brewers did get the, the better end of the deal because the guy, what is it, Trevor Rogers, or he, he's at least serviceable. I mean, he's had a couple blowups, but he's he's serviceable, and the Brewers do have the the two minor leaguers. I you just you just I, to me, it's always amazing about how people can lose it that quickly, mm-hmm. and, and maybe it shows how tough it is to be like a major league baseball player and and what a fine what a fine line there is between being lights out unhittable and then being just awful and then you see guys uh you know jump over to the NFL guys like Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers who are you know getting up there in terms of playing age and are still doing it at such a high level when you could see someone lose it get the yips and all of a sudden they don't have any more other guys still have it at the age of 45 it's really interesting okay so here here's the i mean here's the hot stove lid <laughs> question End of the season, Josh Hader is eligible for arbitration one more year. Mm-hmm. So what? What if the what if the Padres make the decision that they're 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 not going to he'll want big money or whatever if they decide no we're we're just going to cut ties with him we're going to let him go 
Brewers go back and bring him back? Yeah, we'll see if he gives him a hometown discount, because that was the whole thing in the first place. They were worried about arbitration and the deal, the money that it had to pay him. So if you don't have to pay him as much, you could bring him back in. Maybe you could fix it again. We'll see. Well, and you can, I mean, I'm trying to think of this. Assuming there's nothing physically wrong with the guy, maybe it's just, I mean, this all started to happen after his wife had a difficult pregnancy. And, you know, remember he took some time off to be with uh, his wife and a baby, which mm-hmm. is completely and totally appropriate. And, you know, you know, who knows what that story is. And then you have to be, you know, he's been with the Brewers for his entire career yeah. as, a, as a pro. And then you pick up in midseason and they send you to you know, someplace completely different. And I, I don't know, maybe maybe it's just simple minor mechanical things, you would think. Yeah. And I mean, everything going on with the San Diego Padres organization, Tatis being sent down, the ownership sending out the statement, really just dragging him through the mud. Maybe uh, there's not a lot of fun being had in the Padres locker room right now. That could also affect it, too, just the whole locker room mindset he's got going on. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I, I'm, I'm rooting for him as a person. I, I don't want to... I, I, I want to see the Padres lose games because the Brewers <laughs> are trying to overhaul them. So but I'm, I'm rooting against the Padres as a team just because of the pennant race. And I, I, I hope his career's not done. I hope he's able to, to straighten this out, but just maybe not the rest of this year. But you wonder how many more chances... If you're in a pennant race and you've got a guy who's just not performing, maybe you sit him down for a while. Maybe we can all cheer for the Padres to get blown out early enough that it's not on Hater's shoulders. And that way, uh, the Padres still lose and it's not on Hater. And us Brewers fans can all be happy. <laughs> it just, it, it, but it's staggering how quickly you can, can lose that yeah, sort no of kidding. stuff. So, anyways, that's the, that's the Josh Hater update. And at least at this point in time, it looks like the Brewers got the, the better end of that trade. And you do wonder if, if he doesn't turn it around, what does San Diego do for, for next year, and um, you know, and, and you hope it all works out. Like I say, though, maybe not for the rest of this year. Okay, <laughs> let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's go where angels fear to tread. Stick around. Well, I guess when it comes to some things, there is no recession. Um, the let me back up here. Uh, and Journal Sentinel has a, a very, very interesting story by uh, Carrie Spivak. The if you go back, it's 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 tough with with the pandemic. It's it's you got to be careful comparing apples to apples because, for example, Journal Sentinel did a piece on on, on Brewer's attendance. Well, you you can't. You can't look at Brewer's attendance this year and compare it to Brewer's attendance last year because for a good portion of last year, the, the government had restrictions on how many people they could let in. So that, that's not a fair comparison. And, of course, for baseball, there was nobody let into the stadium you know, two years ago. So you really have to go back to 2019. So you know, time has passed. Same thing is true with um, gambling revenue. And they have an interesting piece on, on the Potawatomi Casino. Um, 2020... And 2021, really, you, you can't use those as indicators because the, the casino was shut down for a long period of time. And if it was opened, it was only opened for a limited period. So here's the deal. If you go back to 2019, the 2019 gamblers lost at least $406 million to Potawatomi slot machines and table games that that year. And, and they say at least because the, the tribe doesn't have to actually report, 
it, it's all its earnings and stuff. But what they do is they have to pay a percentage of their, their winnings to the state and to the county and to the city or whatever. So you can extrapolate based on how much they, they pay they pay the state or they pay the the county or the city or whatever. You can extrapolate based on that how much they earned. So keep that in mind. Four hundred six million in twenty nineteen, which was the last year before really that the pandemic hit in twenty twenty. So here are the new reports um, during the twelve month period that ended June thirtieth. So we're talking June, you know, essentially July first of 2021 through June 30th of this year, the casino won at least $388 million from gamblers. That's $100 million more than it raked in during the prior 12-month period. But of, of interest, like I say, 2019, the last pandemic, the last year before the pandemic, $406 million. This most recent year, $388 million, which is... You know, I mean, essentially, it's almost a wash. What's interesting um, to me about this as well is that the the Potawatomi Casino still isn't open, I mean, full-time. I mean, it's open full-time, but um, right now, they're, they're table games. They used to have, like, 80 table games open for um, blackjack and craps before the pandemic. Now they're down to, to 40. They have approximately the same number of slot machines as they did. The slot machines are the same numbers. So with with even half the number of table games, with their race book closed, and that's been closed for the whole pandemic, with half of the restaurants closed, they're essentially doing the same the same business um, and the same winner winnings that they, they had. And that's, you know, I guess it's... For everybody that says, "Oh, you know, we, we've had this, we've had this shortage that, that's happened, and you know, they, all these people are hurting as a result of the pandemic and stuff like that," if you look at people whether they're paying twelve point six million dollars for a Mickey Mantle baseball card, or just looking at the numbers, the, the raw numbers that they're at Potawatomi, it appears that that people are are back in force and maybe even back more intensely than they were beforehand because they're generating about the same number of approximately the same sort of, of revenue. It's a little bit less, but not that much, with half as many table games, no race book operation, and half the number of restaurants. So um, people, I guess, they're, they're still willing to gamble, and I guess the, the challenge Potawatomi is going to have is as you get more of these casinos that are being, you know, built, there's the proposal to build the casino in Kenosha that I still don't think is going to be going anywhere, but there's also a new casino in Beloit. There's going to be more casinos just uh, south of the border. So whether they can sustain it, I don't know. But it does appear that gambling is back big time, and uh, people are down at Potawatomi doing it. Hey, before we move on to my Where Angels Fear to Tread topic, we, we were talking earlier about the, this auction that just what was conducted. It had been an online auction. It was conducted and finalized over the weekend where somebody paid $12.5 million for a Mickey Mantle baseball card. A little closer to Wisconsin, um, Dave Robinson, uh, who was a linebacker, an all-pro linebacker, 
during the the Vince Lombardi years. I mean, he was part of the Packers' glory years. And he was the starting linebacker for the Packers on their t- first two Super Bowl teams, Super Bowl One and Super Bowl Two. Dave Robinson is now 81 years old. He took his two Super Bowl rings along with, I guess, 30 other items and put them up for for auction. And so they were sold over the weekend. His his two Super Bowl rings um each sold for $174,000 each. So um he he cleared almost 330 grand for for his two Super Bowl rings that they say that the um highest previous Super Bowl ring that was sold was Jerry Kramer his Super Bowl 1 ring was sold for about 125,000 in 2016. So these two rings sold for $174,000 each and then in addition to that he had like 28 other items I don't know what they were um that were, were totaled um and and they all sold after everything was totaled up and the auction house took its 20% off of this, it apparently left Robinson with $354,000. So he netted three hundred fifty-four grand. I guess I'm always sort of conflicted by this stuff because, first of all, I mean, you know, Robinson's 81 years old. He said, look, um, I, I just, um, I'm 81 years old. Don't know what I'm going to do with this stuff, and there's things that I'd like to do before I die. And this, you know, I'm just clearing 350 grand, and this is going to you know, obviously you're going to have to pay taxes on it and things like that. But um, I'm going to um, I, I'm going to I'm going to use this, and I want to um, help my granddaughter pay for law school. I, I want to do things. I, I want to do things, you know, with with this this money before I, I pass away. And he says, I, it's a funny feeling knowing there's some things I will never see again, but I don't need anything. I'm pretty well set. I just want to take care of the grandchildren and my son and sister. You know, that's all. When you get older, you think about other things. All along, I was trying to hurry up and build my resources so I'd have money when I got older. Well, now I'm I'm older. And, and you know, that's, I, I, I guess I understand that and I appreciate that. You get to a certain point where, like, it's how much stuff do you need? So I, I understand, you know, his perspective, and it doesn't sound like he's he's fallen on hard times and he's, you know, trying to sell this to pay the rent. It's just like, hey, I'm 81 years old and, you know, I, I want to put, I want to do things with this money before I, I pass away and not have to worry about it. So I, I appreciate it and I give him kudos for that. Guess the flip side, and again, this is just, this is how I am as a buyer. I don't, I mean, it's one thing. I don't think Alex Crow. Would you want somebody else's Super Bowl ring? I, that's just. I would feel. No, I'm sorry. I mean, I would feel if I walked into. I, I love the the show Pawn Stars on, on mm-hmm. History Channel and stuff. And every once in a while, they get these Super Bowl rings or whatever. I I would feel funny going in and and buying somebody's Super Bowl ring, like someone as a else's collector. achievement. Yeah. yeah, I guess I would feel. I don't know. I'm not a big collector. It depends on what money you got. If you got unlimited amount of money and you're a huge fan, that's one thing. But uh, if I'm if I'm budgeting my money, I'm not budgeting anything in there for artifacts or anything like that. I just don't. I understand it. And again, for Dave Robinson, he's. I mean, it's a it's a noble sort of thing. I get why he's selling. I mean, it's like, hey, I'm I'm 81 years old. I don't need this stuff anymore. Might might as well cash in and, and use this money to do constructive stuff at whatever time. And I respect that, and I, yeah. I get it. It's like, you know, you got the stuff. I'm just trying to think of it from a buyer's perspective. I, I I don't know. Buying somebody else's 
memento like that, the Super Bowl ring or something. That's how I've something. always felt about autographs. I've never see, got, seen the point in like like adults seeking other adults like autographs. So you met someone cool, you got them to sign a piece of paper. That's not really it. Doesn't really do a whole lot for me. Yeah, yeah. I guess auto, I don't know. I'd have to. I mean, I, I don't. I don't collect celebrity yeah. autographs either it's just like the super bowl i mean you'd almost feel i guess you almost feel like you're predatory that, that you would think that that's such a part of somebody's life and you're, you're buying it but in this case i get it robinson it's it's not he's not selling it because he has to because he's fallen on hard times he's just he's 81 years old and he's trying to think you know i i want to do i want to i want to do things with this and i want to do good things i want to put my granddaughter through law school i want to make sure my my son is is set and mm-hmm. all those type of things and and so it's a it's kind of a noble thing as opposed to that the guy needs the money because you don't get that sense but still i just i don't i don't know <laughs> that i'd buy somebody's super bowl ring i always think that when i see the pawn star stuff but i, I don't think i would either i don't know maybe it's if it's a once in a lifetime deal but even still you'd still feel a little weird about it but um, again, it doesn't make any difference because I don't have $174,000 lying around that um, I would spend on that. Okay, so Dave Robinson sells his two Super Bowl rings from Super Bowl one and two for $174,000 each. So we do the math, carry this, $350,000 okay. approximately, a ballpark. Um, somebody, one of our texters said, how much, I'm just curious, how much did he make during the course of his lifetime? Um, and I don't know how much the course of his lifetime, but the first two years he played, he made fifteen thousand dollars a piece. How, how athletics have changed? Because you know, back back in the day, these football players, you know, the 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 great football players, it, it was really I don't want to say it's a part time job, but they all they all worked in the yeah. off season. They had beer distributorships and, and this type of stuff. Um, so his first two years, he made fifteen thousand bucks, and then he was all pro. And Vince Lombardi gave him a raise his third year to twenty thousand dollars. So, <laughs> so I mean, he played ten years, but his first three, fifteen, fifteen, that's fifty grand. My guess is his entire career, he probably and you got to adjust for inflation, but he probably his entire career didn't earn close to three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Which just adds another layer to the story. You're right. Who wants to buy these rings? But also good on him that he's not on hard times he wants to be able to use this money to help people there's just so many so many different layers to this story i think that find make it so interesting well right because again at at the end of the day it's kind of it's sort of stuff i mean i i remember when we when when we we downsized when we sold the house in whitefish bay and you're going through all this stuff that you'd accumulated over 30 years Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like huh why why did i keep this (laughs) no no, seriously Or, or you know you think okay well Okay, I understand why I might have saved that twenty five years ago, but what what am I what am I gonna do? I haven't looked at this box of stuff for, you know, twenty some years, so what am I gonna do? Move it to my new place and put it in my basement and then, you know, the the stepkids or somebody <laughs> else is gonna have to deal with it. So I mean you you have to we were we were really kinda of brutal and, and Fran helped me with this. It was like, okay, let's I was on a first-name basis with the dumpster guy because we'd go through stuff, and it was like, okay, this is stuff that's going to the new house. Yeah. This is stuff that we're giving to friends. This is stuff that we're going to try to see if anybody wants, and this is stuff that's going to Goodwill, and this is stuff that's going to the dumpster. Yeah. And But you have to be brutal about it because you do. I had, Alex, I had paper. I had my class notes from when I was in law school. Mm-hmm. Now, why I did I think someday there was going to be a Jeff Wagner presidential <laughs> library or something? I don't. But I mean, I, I had boxes of class notes from my first and second and third year in law school that I graduated from law school. And then I put them in the box and I put them up in the attic. And I, I'm looking at these and I, I admit there was this temptation to Oh, maybe we'll move them, but then it was kind of like, why? <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, I haven't looked at these in 25 years.
there's not going to be a Jeff Wagner Presidential Library. So, <laughs> all right, it, it's the dumpster. But it, it's always that, able to let go. Yeah, I was no, I was able to to let go, and I feel you know, and I'm well. It, it's like we're doing this around here. You know, we're 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 moving mm-hmm. out. So, I mean, I I've I've been here for going on 25 years, and so I've been brutal at cleaning out my my space. You know, and it was like. All these different things. I think I took one banker's box home, and I've got another banker's box that's all loaded up, ready to go. And But it was all this stuff that you accumulated over these decades, and I'm going, okay, well, if I take this home, what am I going to do with it? And the <laughs> truth is I'm going to put it in a box, and the box is going to go into the basement, and then – It'll be somebody else's problem when I die. Yeah, I was going to say, sit, sit there until the next move or until someone else goes through it, right? Well, right, ex- exactly. So I've been trying, I'm trying to be brutal and, and with that kind of stuff. But it's, um, I, you no, know, no Super Bowl rings in there, though. Nothing there, like that you're giving away. No, there's, there's nothing. No, there's, there's, there was no Super Bowl. But, but there were, you know, there were things that I thought, you know, other people might want and stuff. But it's like people who have, um, like when I when I first got married, everybody registered for wedding China, mm-hmm. you know, and that that was the thing. And I and I look and and you know and we did. We had great great China and stuff and these expensive glasses that I'm almost afraid to, to haul out and use. But now you can't give away China. Nobody wants you. You say to the kids, "You want the China? No, thanks." You know, we you know nobody wants the, the China and stuff. And you have it, so you you use it for. You use it for like the like when you have people over for Christmas dinner or something, but it's all this stuff that you accumulate that at the end of the day. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> I look. I just got married. I just got a house, so I'm just starting to accumulate all of the stuff that is coming in. There's uh, there's plenty of space for okay, it. <laughs> I, I'll give you just a little bit of free advice then. Okay, okay and that is, I think you, I think people do a great service if they, if they, if you, if you do a purge like every five years. Um, because otherwise you just, you just accumulate all this stuff and okay. you, you put it in closets and then, but at some point in time, you know, if, if you don't move, like I, I didn't move, if you don't move on a regular basis, mm-hmm. I, I'd say like every five years or so you do a purge just to really go and look, it's kind of like clothes closets. Yeah. I don't know if you're like me, but I mean, you know, you, you, you accumulate all these different clothes and you just can't let it go. And you say, okay, I haven't worn that shirt in five <laughs> years. And, and if I haven't worn the shirt in five years, the chances are I'm probably not going to suddenly wake up and start wearing it again. <laughs> You know, it's so you do, I think, need whether whether five years is the magic thing or 10 years or seven years or whatever. But I otherwise you will you will be like Jeff and you'll end up with like all this stuff going. Why do I have my notes from law school? Here? Yeah. So 2027. That's when that's when the purge will start. Then, j- I guess, for the house five j- years down j- the road. And, and you've got it. And you've got to be brutal. You can't be too sentimental. Now, I understand if you got kids and stuff, maybe you want to keep the kids like baby pictures and things like that. But or they're you know, this is the, the you know, the, the first at school or whatever. I I get that. But in general, it's, ama- it's amazing how much yeah. stuff that you can accumulate. All right. When we come back. Lock him up. Stick around. All right, let's go where angels fear to tread. Uh, Donald Trump not going away quietly um, over, you know, since the the FBI, since the, the FBI put out the, the redacted version of the, the search warrant, which really makes it is you still don't know what exactly the the reason why authorities felt they needed to go in and get the these documents back but um trump is he's he's not going away quietly um a matter of fact he posted something on his truth social um website yesterday 
where he said, when are the great FBI agents and others in the FBI going to say, we aren't going to take it anymore, much as they did when James Comey read off a list of all crooked Hillary Clinton's crimes, crimes only to say no reasonable prosecutor would prosecute. The wonderful people of the FBI went absolutely nuts, so Comey had to backtrack and do a fake investigation in order to keep them at bay. The end result, we won in 2016 and did much better in 2020, but now the left has lost their minds. So he's, he's, he's again not going quietly into the good night and um he's you know we're not gonna take it anymore and and that sort of stuff and trying to rally the troops in the face of you know potential criminal charges as a result of uh, again the handling of documents that as i've said on multiple occasions i I don't understand how this became an issue i mean i don't i I don't understand why he he had these boxes of documents he wasn't going to sell them to foreign powers or whatever it's just Again, whether it was sloppiness or arrogance or or whatever, he, you know, these are, at least in many cases, these are documents that you you should have left behind. And how significant they are, I I don't know, because the FBI and the National Archives knew he had them. And that the fact that they've been going back and forth to try to get them back for the better part of a year and a half told me that there wasn't necessarily this urgency, which is why I've said all along that. They better have a really good reason for having to do the search warrant as opposed to just issuing a subpoena. And if he fails to produce him, you go to a judge and you get him held into contempt. In any event, there's this this huge issue going on about do you prosecute the former president? Now, the New York Times has a big editorial over the weekend saying Donald Trump is not above the law and he should be prosecuted. But if you read the editorial, it's really not about keeping the records. It's more about we think he should be investigated for obstructing justice in connection with the election and for encouraging the, you know, action, whether you want to call it a riot or whatever, at the Capitol on January 6th. It's really that's why they are arguing that he should be prosecuted less so for for the records. The Wall Street Journal has the flip side of this. And the Wall Street Journal, their editorial, talks about how, you know, there's really not much difference between, you know, what Hillary Clinton did with her email server and what it appears Trump could have been. I mean, in 2016, you know, James Comey comes out and says, although there is evidence of potential violations of the statutes regarding the handling of classified information, our judgment is that no reasonable prosecutor would bring this case. And then in the face of that, the acting attorney general, you know, let it let it go, thereby setting essentially the, the Clinton standard. You know, because, you know, Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, was obligated to follow all the typical classification rules that apply to government officials. Um, She falsely claimed that she had turned over all work-related emails to the State Department, but the FBI found several thousand work-related emails that weren't turned over. And, you know, it goes on. So the point of the Wall Street Journal article is, look, you, know, you didn't prosecute Hillary Clinton, and she went on to run for, for president. You know, um, it's not like she sold the stuff that was on her server to Russians and things like that. And it's essentially, you know, is what Trump did parallel to that? And do we really want to, on this issue, criminalize it? All right, we only got a couple minutes. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand that there are people out there, and when we've talked about this topics before, I've, I've heard from you, who hate Donald Trump. Who, and that's, people don't like to admit that they hate him, but I, you, you hate him. You know, you, you want to see him put in handcuffs and, and hauled away. 
I get it. I, I understand that. He, you know, violated all these norms. You find him to be offensive. You think, you know, he should have, you know, he made huge mistakes and probably crossed the line by not will, being willing to accept the results of the election and everything that happened. And by the way, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you on a lot of that stuff. But on this, this records issue, which we're focusing on now, I think just like despite the fact that Trump was calling to lock her up, you know, they, they never did. And I think the same kind of standard applies. If you're going to go after Donald Trump, you, you got to go after him for, uh, again, maybe, you know, trying to influence the election improperly. But to go after him for a, a records thing, gee, he had these documents, he shouldn't have had them at Mar-a-Lago, they should have gone to the National Archives. I think that sets a, a very, very bad precedent. And by the way, I still continue to believe that they're not going to be able to get a conviction because of the intent requirements that are there. And, and what does it do for this country if for the next year you have a prosecution of a former president on what I would describe at best as a, a technical violation of of laws, which really are never are not used for criminal purposes, unless again you, you've got somebody that's trying to sell classified documents to to the Russians. If you want to go after him on something else, that that's fine. But if if we didn't prosecute Hillary Clinton, and you can go back and check the tapes, and I made the same argument back then that I make now, didn't think it would have been good for the country to prosecute Hillary Clinton based on this email server thing, and I don't think. I don't think it would be good to prosecute Donald Trump on this. If they got him on something else, that's a different story. All right, 855-616-1620. Rome and Wauwatosa, you're first. Good afternoon. Yes, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. And uh, I'm not calling to be a crybaby or anything or to get on your case. But I think that when it comes to Donald Trump, every time I, li- I listen to your show every day, and you seem to be very wishy-washy when it comes to him. And it always comes to what if, what if, uh, what or what about. What about Hillary Clinton? What yeah. about Hunter Biden? Yeah. My take on this is no matter who it was, if it was the Lord Jesus Christ or whoever you believe in that broke the law, they should pay the cost. You know, I don't think that we should give anyone a pass when it comes down to them breaking the law. And if you want to talk about apples to oranges with him and Hillary Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, did, she cooperated. And if you want to say she didn't cooperate, then that comes down to what the FBI came down to. But when you look at at, uh, Mr. Trump, it's a thing where I think that we're too wishy-washy with this, and we need to get past the what about is. Well, no, I guess here's my answer, Rome. I I don't. Here's where I disagree with you, and I don't know that it's being wishy-washy on on Trump, because I'm the guy that says, I I want Trump to go away. I I, I do. But at the same time, and I'll give you my perspective as a former federal prosecutor, just because you might be able to fashion an argument and bring charges, there's all sorts of times you you don't do that because... It's just not necessarily the right thing to do. Now, like I say, in in this particular case, and in the cases of most records, it's not, if he was selling, if he was selling confidential documents to the Russians or something, that's a whole completely different story. But what you have is a dispute over, you know, he, he had legal access and legitimate access to these documents. He was supposed to leave them behind. They end up in boxes along with all this other stuff. Is that something that you really want to treat as criminal for a former president of the United States? And, and, and that, that, that is the question. What do you gain by this? Are you going to put him in jail for doing something like this? What, what do you gain? What is the purpose? You know, he, 
you know, I, I think he's got some legitimate defenses to this, although, again, I don't understand why you would do it. It would be so much more simple to just let the stuff be, go. Hillary Clinton, same sort of thing. I didn't think she should be prosecuted. I think that even if you could create a technical violation of the law, it accomplished nothing. I mean, at the end of the day, they got the they got the documents off of the server. At the end of the day, they got the records back from Trump. Okay, now they had to do it via search warrant. I think you could have done it by other less intrusive means, but they got the documents back. So at the end of the day, it's no harm, it's no foul. It's not like Russians got them and things like that. And I think you have to be careful to to criminalize stuff that really doesn't amount to what a lot of people would think would be a crime. Now, I understand if you don't like Donald Trump, you, you want to do everything you possibly can to see him put behind bars. Okay, I, I understand that. And if you love Donald Trump, you think that this is nothing but a witch hunt that is designed to, okay, try to get him on technical violations of the law that where you wouldn't apply that same standard to other people like Hillary Clinton. And and th- I appreciate both sides. That's not being wishy-washy. That's why I'm saying unless there's really something compelling that's come out of there, this is one where, it, to me, it's no harm, no foul. If you want to go after Trump, if you really think he committed crimes like obstructing justice and trying to overhaul the in try, in his refusal to accept the fact that the vote was what the vote was and tried to influence the Secretary of State in, in Georgia and contributed to the riots, if you want to call them that, on January 6th, okay, the, those are then go after him and prove him on that prove it that to try to kind of backdoor this well we want to get trump to have a conviction using a technical violation of the national archives act when you haven't done it in similar situations read hillary clinton i, I think it's it's unduly divisive to this country because i think for the interest of the country, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, we need to move beyond where we we were, and we need to get past all the hatred that's come from the Trump era and start focusing on the things that are, I don't know, really significant as far as you know where we're going as a country. See, the stock market's down 127 points today on top of 1,000 points yesterday. Let's talk about inflation. Let's talk about, you know, Russia and Ukraine. Let's talk about the border. Let's talk about, if you want to, let's talk about college loans and things like that. But the sooner we get past the Trump era, I think the better it's going to be for all of us.